disciples. If you look, if Mark is set up chronologically at all, and there's probably some to it, you're looking at the last probably two weeks of Jesus' life at this point, somewhere in there, maybe two, three weeks left. So he's been with these guys for three years, and what they've heard consistently, if you remember back when we looked at Mark 1, way back even in September, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of God is near. That's been the message, the theme that Jesus has been hammering for three years. So he's had these 12 guys with him. They've heard this message over and over again, and what they're hearing Kingdom of God, that's the ruler reign of God, 100% true. What they're thinking, though, is political. We've got this Roman government, and for the kingdom to come, God is going to overthrow this pagan, evil, wicked, Gentile Roman government, and he's going to establish the Jews at the top of the food chain, politically, economically, militarily, all of these promises that you read in Deuteronomy, these very literal promises, they're going to come true in history right now. That's what it means for the kingdom to come. And these guys know Jesus is ushering in the kingdom. Kingdoms need kings. They know Jesus is the king, but kings need a court. And so there's some jockeying for position. We'll look at that next week. But that's what's on their mind. They know they're moving towards Jerusalem, and that's where kings are crowned. Everything significant, most things significant in the history of the Jewish people center around Jerusalem. It's the center of their life together, historically, politically, economically, militarily, in every way, spiritually. And so they know they're moving towards Jerusalem, all this talk about kingdom. Jesus is spending much more time just with these 12, uh, prepping them, downloading this information in them, preparing them for what's next. And so you could, there's some probably excitement in the disciples. Hey, where are we, and we'll see this next week. Where do we get to sit? Who's on your right hand? Who's on your left hand? All this kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, we'll pick up with these two different scenes. This is a deliberate contrast I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke place both of these scenes next to each other. They want us to see these uh, as a contrast. So people were bringing little children. In Luke, the word is babies. I'm thinking these are, this is four and under to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. That's a harsh word, rebuke. He said, y'all are wrong to do this. Get these kids out of here. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That's another strong word, some kind of combination of being angry and, and being offended. He said to them, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, excuse me, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So this is kind of the picture to me. Y'all been to the mall um, in December when people are trying to get their kids to Santa Claus. That's what's going. Parents have dressed their little kids up. They're in their, you know, whatever that looks like, their best robe or whatever kids wore. And they're grouchy because they've been standing in a line, and they're whining, and their parents are saying, no, this is going to be fun, You're, we're making memories here, and all of this stuff is going on. And so Jesus is, Jesus is here, and the disciples, they're just trying to get, create some space. Can you just make a way for, this is the king, just clear some room so he can get through. Children are fine in this, but seen and not heard, absolutely. They're kind of low on the food chain. 
uh, in terms of the status. And so I, the disciples are realistically, this is the king. He doesn't have time for a bunch of babies, a bunch of toddlers to be crowding around. So they're trying to get these kids out of the way. And Jesus says, no, these guys, verse 15 is one of the most important verses for us this morning. It's something that we really need to get in our hearts. I tell you the truth, unless in, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That's a very strong statement. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Receiving the kingdom of God, that's a synonym for becoming a Christian, following Jesus, getting saved, inheriting eternal life, whatever you want to say, it's under this umbrella of receiving. the. That's what we want. We want to receive or enter the kingdom of God. That means I'm in a right relationship with God again, and he's fixed the things that are broken in my heart and in my life. That's what we're going for. And he's saying, if that's what I want, I've got to receive this kingdom like a little child. Again, a very strong statement. So the disciples, I think, are probably stinging from this. They, they don't get it. Again, they, they don't understand. You know, kings need guys to help them run a kingdom. Kids tend to get in the way. And then we have this guy comes up. If you look in Matthew and Luke, we kind of put some pieces together. He's a rich, young ruler. He's a prince of some sort, some type of a ruler. And he comes up to Jesus, and everything looks Wonderful. He kneels before Jesus. This guy's probably never knelt before anybody in his entire life, which is not strange. I've never knelt before anybody in my entire life. I mean, that's just not something that we do. And it's particularly not something a guy like this would do. He's used to having people kneel before him and ask him for stuff. But he's probably never knelt before someone else. He recognizes, he calls Jesus a good teacher, and Jesus says, hey, only, only God's good. He, he, again, he's seeing in Jesus that you're above me here, and I'm coming to you asking you for something that I believe that you can give me. He asked him the right question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he knows enough about Jesus' track record to say, hey, this guy's going to be able to give a credible answer to this question. Jesus rattles off uh, five or so commandments from the Ten Commandments, do all these things, and the guy says, I mean, I've done every one of those since I was a kid. I've, since I was 12 years old, and I became responsible for the law, I've done them, and there's no reason to think the guy's lying. Jesus calls people out when they lie, and he doesn't call this guy out at all. Jesus' response, according to Mark, is he loved him. That was Jesus' response to his answer saying he kept the law. So there's, again, every reason to believe he actually did keep the law. He's a righteous guy, good guy, the guy that you want on your team. Not a bunch of three- and four-year-olds. This is the guy that you want on your team if you're trying to set up a kingdom. And so the disciples, I'm sure at this point, are thinking, we got one. Finally, we got one. He, he's done everything that Jesus asked. And then what does Jesus come back with? Well, there's one more thing. Never before, never after. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nobody else ever gets this instruction. Just this guy. Why don't you just go and sell everything you've got? Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And then why don't you come follow me? I'm sure the disciples are going, seriously, Jesus? You're just running the guy off. He's try- he wants to be with us. He recognizes the authority that you have spiritually. He's knelt before you. He recognizes there's something special about you, calling you good, and we all know only God is good. He's kept every commandment since he was 12 years old, and he's loaded, and he's powerful. What- why? That's the kind of guy that we need. Important to remember, Jesus loved him. He's not trying to run this guy off. 
He's not saying, you know what, my team is locked. I'm going to set the bar so high that you can't clear it. He loves him, so he's trying to pull him in. What he recognizes in this guy is a hindrance. He recognizes an obstacle, something that's going to keep him from entering the kingdom and something that's going to keep him from following after Jesus. And because he loves him, he points it out and says, you've got to get rid of that. That's a noose around your neck. You've got to get rid of that thing. That's a weight that you don't need to carry. Again, the disciples at this point, it's totally counterintuitive how these little rugrats somehow are in and we've all got to be like them. And this guy who outwardly has everything going for him, including being a righteous guy. He's not just rich and powerful, he's righteous. All these things going for him, somehow he misses the boat. He, what does it say, he leaves, his face fell, he, went, he goes away sad because he has great wealth. So then Jesus, just to kind of put a bow on it, he looks around and says to the disciples, how hard is it, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Wealth is a sign of God's favor. What are you talking about? It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's easier for the biggest animal you know to go through the smallest opening you know than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So that's a nice way of saying it's impossible. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And of course that's what they said. If a guy like this can't get in, then who gets in? He, he, he's the first round draft pick. If he doesn't enter into the kingdom of God, then what hope do the rest of us have for entering into the kingdom of God? We're going to look at that for a second. If we back up, this general call to follow Jesus, that's for all of us. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you're following him. We've talked about that before. Again, specifically, this call to go and sell everything, that's verse 21. Verse 15 is a key verse. Verse 21 is a key verse, this idea of selling everything and following him. That's a very particular instruction to this individual man that's never made before or after in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Zacchaeus, I think it's in Luke 19, he uh, spontaneously decides, you know what, I've got to give away half of what I've earned because he was a crook. And if I've, def and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay him back four times what they gave me. That, Jesus didn't tell him to do that. That was his response to, to, to entering into the presence of God. He, he was convicted of his sin and as a way of showing his repentance. They call it fruit of repentance. He gave all this money back. The original disciples, when they followed Jesus, they did leave their boats and they left their nets, but there's no indication that Jesus ever said sell them. Actually, if you read in, I think it's John 21, Peter goes back and starts fishing again. So they left their stuff, but they didn't sell their stuff. So again, there's something very particular about this guy. And so I think the question for us is, if it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, well, we need to find out, figure out if we're rich. That's a, again, that's a strong statement. If you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to receive it like a child. Well, I need to figure out what it looks like to receive it like a child because I want to enter into the kingdom. And if it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, well, I better figure out if I'm rich or not because I need to know how difficult it's going to be for me to enter the kingdom of God. So the question, don't answer it, is are you rich? Because you're sitting in here, of course you're going to say yes. If I asked you tomorrow at the deli, you'd probably say no. You'd say you're middle class. You might say you're upper middle class. There's a website. It's called globalrichlist.com. So this is the website, and you can type in how much money you make. The median income, so that's, uh, median is it's dead in the middle. There's just as many people who make more than this and less than this. It's, it's right in the middle. The median income in Marietta is 47 grand a year. So if you make the median in Marietta, I don't know if you're in the back if you can see that, 
it, you're in the top 1.14% of the world. So this is based on uh, data from, I think, 2003. They're working on a 6 billion population of 6 billion, and you're the 68th millionth richest person in the world. Median income in Cobb County, apparently Marietta brings down the score. The median income in Cobb County is $71,000. Let's hear what that is. That puts you in the top 0.84%. So you're in the top 1% of people in the world if you make the median income in Cobb County. For me, the sweet number, for whatever reason, has always been 100,000. That's just a nice round number. So if you make that, to me, magical number, where are you at? You're in the, well, you did it wrong. Sorry, that was rude. There you go. You were starting to feel good about yourself. That'll make you feel bad again. You're in the top two-thirds of a percent. You're, we're rich, all of us, we're rich by any objective standard. Now, I'll tell you, now, remember, I just told you what median is. It means just as many people make more money as less money. So if you want to be, what's the global median? Three billion make more than you, three billion make less than you. Tell me a number. Out loud, I can't read your mind. Huh? Two? That's close. Anybody else? 850. Let's type that in. $850 a year. That's what puts you at the median. There's nothing magic about median. It's just uh, it's a nice way of seeing where we stand. Now listen, I don't want to make 850 bucks a year. I got four kids. That doesn't work. I don't have any desire to move. So this is the. I don't want to live anywhere else. Period. I'm fine being in the top one point whatever percent that I'm in. That doesn't. This is not a guilt thing for any of us. What it is is a reality that this passage applies because most of us read it and say it doesn't because we don't think we're rich. LeBron James is rich. Julia Roberts is rich. Warren Buffett is rich. I'm not rich. The only people who we can compare ourselves to and not be rich are outliers. That's it. By any, again, objective measure, everybody in this room, I would even say you can be unemployed, and if you live in the United States, you're still doing pretty well compared to other places in the world. So, again, this is not a, a guilt about money. This is just a recognition that this applies to us. If it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, then I need to own the fact that I'm rich and say, well, all right, what's going to get in my way? Because that's what I want. I want to enter the kingdom of God, and apparently there's something about my life station or life style, not lifestyle, life station that's going to keep me or make it difficult for me to get what I want. There's something about, again, I, I, according to Jesus, I'm much more like the rich young ruler than I am like a baby or a two-year-old or a three-year-old who was brought. That's, and I've got to own that, and so do you. Again, not for the sake of guilt, but for the sake of growth so I can move forward and figure out exactly what's going on. So is the question, are you rich? The answer is yes. If you're sitting in this room, you're rich. Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? What about being wealthy makes it hard? There's several things. The Bible talks a ton about money. We're not going to go into all of it. I'll give you a few things real quick that you can dig into later. First Timothy, First Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says this. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Actually, don't. That, so basically what he's saying is money and wanting money leads to sin. This desire for more, that's covetousness. That leads to sin. I actually don't think that has anything to do with the rich young ruler at all. According to everything that we know about him, he's a good guy. He's a righteous guy. One of the Ten Commandments is don't covet, and he apparently is doing a pretty good job. So I don't think that's in view. That might be something for you that would keep you from really entering the kingdom, but that's not what's in view here. Uh, Matthew 6.21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money fights for our heart. Our heart's the center of who we are. It's the center of our personality, where our mind, our will, and our emotions all reside. It's not just the feeling place. It's the feeling, thinking, choosing place within us. Again, the core of who we are. And money fights for control of that or the attention of that. Jesus said, again, where your treasure is, your heart will be. If you happen to be somebody who puts money on games, you bet a little bit. Most likely, once you put money on a game, you care a whole lot more about the outcome than you did before you put money on the game. Some of you bet while you're playing golf. Again, those holes become much more important to you. That's why you bet, to make it more interesting, because you've got something riding on it. If tomorrow you took whatever you got in the bank, you took half of it and you bought Coke stock, you'd suddenly become really concerned about what's going on in the world of soft drinks. And you probably don't care today. Money exerts a gravitational pull on our heart. Wherever our money is, our hearts just and start orbiting around whatever those things are. Might, I don't actually think that's in view here with the rich young ruler, but it is one of the reasons why it's difficult for rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God because there's something fighting for our hearts, and that's what God wants. He doesn't share. He wants our hearts. He wants us to be locked in to him. And if I've, if I've got this other kind of, again, gravitational pull causing me to orbit around other issues, competes with God. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So money doesn't just compete for our heart. It also competes for our loyalty. If you went back in your Bible and you looked at Matthew 6, 24, most likely money, or your translation might say mammon, it's capitalized. At that point, Jesus isn't talking about a $10 bill. He's talking about money kind of this spiritual reality that money is. Again, so it's capitalized. You, and what he's saying is you can't serve both. If the picture of being a Christian is following Jesus, think literally. He's walking and I'm walking after him. I, can, I can't walk after two people at the same time unless they're going in the same direction, right? And at some point along the way, Jesus and Mammon are going to, their paths are going to diverge and I'm going to have to make a call. That's why you can't serve two masters, no matter what the two masters are. Because at some point, Jesus and whatever this other thing is, they're going to move in different directions, and you can't follow both at the same time. It's impossible. You're going to love one and hate the other. You're going to serve one and despise the other. That's just the nature of following. You can only follow one thing at a time. You can only move in one direction at a time. And again, unless both of these things are lined up with each other, it doesn't work. As a side note, that's why it's so important in your relationship you're significant, if you're dating, if you're engaged, if you're married. That's why it's so important to be yoked with someone spiritually who's moving in the same direction as Jesus. Because at some point, if not, if you're dating someone who spiritually is not in the same place as you, and you progress in your relationship, those paths are going to diverge, and you've got to make a call. 
Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to stick with him or her? And that's an excruciating choice to make once you've given your heart away. So make it way back here. If this person, this man, this woman, if they're not following Jesus, then I'm not walking with them. You just decide, or they might be wonderful in every other area, but if they're missing that, at some point, that's going to happen, and you're caught, and once you're married, then you're in real trouble. Come see me if you're in that situation. We'll work on it. Seriously. That's a tough place to be. That was a tangent. So, this is not about giving. Let me say this before we move on. If this guy is following the Old Testament law, most likely he's giving a minimum of 20% of his income away every year, which I would say is probably more than any of us are giving away every year. Depending on how you understand tithes in the Old Testament, he either gave 20% every year or he went 20, 20, 30, 20, 20, 30, 20, 20, 30. Again, depending on how you understand the different tithes in the Old Testament. So if that's what he's doing, this is not an issue of how much money he's giving away. He's giving away, again, probably more than any of us. So giving, is, that's not the deal. There's something even underneath that that's getting in the way. It's not, okay, just give more to the church. He said, you've got to get rid of all of it. So again, what's going on that even giving to the temple doesn't fix? And I think this is probably the key. For this guy, for this rich young ruler, and for, maybe for you, money keeps us from receiving the kingdom of God like a child because it's impossible to take the posture of a child when you have a plan B. And by plan B, I don't necessarily mean a backup plan. I couldn't think of a better phrase. I don't really mean a backup plan. I mean uh, it's another way of having your needs met. Think babies. Think two-year-olds. Think three-year-olds. Babies is the easiest to picture. They can't do a thing for themselves, period. They are totally dependent on the grace, the love, the care, the compassion, the mercy of other people. All they can do is cry. And when they cry, what they're saying is, I have a need that I can't meet. I'm hungry and I can't feed myself. I'm dirty and I can't change myself. I'm sleepy and I don't even know how to fall asleep. So I'm just going to cry until you rock me. That's what they're doing. 100% dependent upon the grace, mercy, love, compassion of somebody else to meet their needs. That's what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God like a child. It's a recognition. I'm 100% dependent upon the grace of God to have all of my needs met. Not just spiritual, not just forgiveness, not just joy, not just peace, not just reconciliation. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from heaven, comes from the Father of lights. Jesus says his Father longs to give good gifts to his children. In that context, he's talking about earthly fathers feeding their kids breakfast. Again, very earthy, very real very practical. Matthew 6, if you go back and read, what does he say? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God's got all of it. Very practical needs. Again, not just the spiritual. If you, Plan B is any means that we have any uh, alternate avenue that we take to have our needs met. Anything else. That, and that's what this guy had. This rich man, had a, he had a plan B. He had a pile of money. Again, don't think of it in terms of a backup plan. Well, if God doesn't come through, then I've got this I can fall back on. That could be it, but it's actually much more subtle than that. It's grace plus. I can rely on the grace of God plus this pile of money to get my needs met. Very tricky, I think, with money in particular. If I go to Kroger today and I pile up a cart full of groceries and I get to the checkout place and they ring the bill up, 
And they say, how do you want to pay for it? And I say, um, I'm trusting God to meet my needs. He's got it. What are they going to tell me? Put it back. You've got to pay for it with real money, or a credit card at least. Very difficult for us in the world that we live in to not lean on money, particularly when we have it, because it meets all of these practical needs. Yes, I know theoretically God provides for me, but again, God doesn't write the check to the bank every month for my mortgage. If the money, you get what I'm saying, it's very difficult for us to separate those things and say, no, God is my provision, security. God says, I'm your rock, I'm your fortress, I'm your defender, I'm your advocate, I've got you. You are secure. I'm going to get, you know, the whole calming the storm thing. I do all of that. How tempting is it to say, but I got a check that can cover it just in case. We plan, which is wonderful, and we're prudent, which is wonderful. But it's so subtle how we go from planning and being prudent to putting our weight on that as well. I'm not fully leaning on the grace of God. I'm straddling a bit. If you worry, then most likely you're looking to money as a source of security. Again, theoretically, you might get here. I know God provides for me, blah, blah, blah. He's got me, rock. I get it. But if you're, if you're worried on a regular basis about your finances, then what that most likely indicates is that you have this, uh, you've got a plan B. And it's your income stream that's going to take care of you. That's how your needs, yes, God will provide for me, and I've got this other thing coming alongside as well. Identity, huge. God determines who we are. He says you're pure, you're holy, you're chosen, you're royal. He says you're a son, you're a daughter of God. That's who I am. I live in a world that doesn't care. And so it's a lot easier for me to allow my identity to be determined by what I've got what I wear or what I drive or where I live or whether I'm a member of the club or what vacation I take. None of those things are bad at all. Do them. But don't allow those things to shape your identity. And again, it's so subtle the way money works that way. When you've got it, there's this, it's this constant siren song. Lean on me. Lean here. I've got this. I'll take care of it for you. So the question, are you rich? The answer is yes. The second question is, is your wealth hindering you from receiving the the kingdom of God like a little child? Does your wealth keep you from saying, I'm 100% dependent upon the grace of God? I've got no hope apart from him being gracious and kind and loving and compassionate and merciful to me to have my needs met. This is Luke 18. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to flip there. You might not yet. Let me read the rest of this. So where does that leave us? The disciples say, who then can be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. Great, Peter. Hey, we're in, right? We left everything. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields and with them persecutions, don't forget that part, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What Jesus is saying here, it's all grace. It's grace. Rich and poor people, we all get to God the same way. Grace. We've all sinned. 
We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and every one of us is tempted towards a plan B. Every one of us, because we're people. If you've been in a, if you if you became a Christian, I would say after twelve, most likely you learned how to cope. Even if you became a Christian at twelve, you probably you still had to get through junior high and high school. Most of us learn coping mechanisms. How can I get my needs met just in case? For some of us, it's how smart we are. For some of us, it's how hard we work. For some of us, it's how cute we are and how great our smile is. Some of us shake a lot of hands and kiss a lot of babies. There's lots of ways that we have come up with to get our needs met outside of the grace of God. This is Luke um, 18. This, this is in Luke's gospel. This is right before the story of the little children. I think Luke's what he wants us to tie these two things together. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee, a super righteous guy, and a tax collector, kind of a scumbag. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, excuse me, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is me. I don't like the rich man. I've kind of done some heart work. That's not me. I don't lean on income. I lean on the fact that I'm a good guy, and occasionally I'm a great guy. And I lean on that. I lean on my track record. I don't sin a whole lot. So see, I can get my God come through for me. It's not about your grace only. It's also about how much I deserve you to work in my life because I don't cuss and I haven't seen, you know, whatever the movie, all of that stuff. It doesn't work. That's my, that's what I lean on and it's totally wrong. It's either grace or it's nothing. It can't be grace and something else. So what is your plan B? For yours, it might be wealth. It might be, again, your work ethic. It might be your relational connections. You might be like me. It might be your behavior, your track record, the fact that you're a good guy or a good girl. It could be some of you, you know, you have, you've gotten by on personality. Those type of things. And I don't know what, and that for all of us, what Jesus says is sell it. You've got to sell it. You can't keep it. If you're going to receive the kingdom like a little child, that means recognizing you're 100% dependent upon the grace of God. You're a little baby who can't have, all you can do is say, I need help. I'll call, but you've got to answer. That's all I can do. Unless I'm willing, and until we can say that, we're, it's not good. He's saying to us, you've got to sell it. And I don't have any idea what that looks like. I don't know what it looks like to say to someone like me, you've got to sell this whole idea of your work and your relative goodness, your ability to keep the rules, to follow the rules. But I've got to. I've got to sell that. And he says the same thing to you. Whatever your plan B is, you've got to figure out how to get rid of it, and I can't tell you. You've got to ask him, what is it and how do I get rid of it? Because it will keep you from receiving the kingdom like a little child. And that's not where you want to be. This whole thing about God will give back. Some, maybe if you watch TV preachers, you heard about the hundredfold blessing. That's a sham. They're just trying to get a new jet. It's not true. It's not. That's not what, have they ever told you you're going to get a hundred times the persecution back? No. They tell you you're going to get a hundred times the parents back, the kids? No. They say you can get 100 times the cash back. It's a money grab. Here it's a divine lottery. What? That's dumb. Don't, no. 
What this is, is Jesus is saying, you can't outgive me. Whatever you give, I'm going to give back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You give up this, whatever, whatever you're selling, it's going to be hard for you to sell it. It's hard for me to sell it. The promise here is, I'm going to give it back to you. The picture here is of these disciples who are on mission with Jesus. They're doing their deal. And he's saying, all of the, you're, whatever you've given up for me, you're getting back. And all of these communities where you're going, you're finding a place to stay. All of these different people are becoming your brothers and sisters in Christ. All of these different people, their feet, they're taking care of you. They're meeting your needs. Yeah, you gave up some boats and some fish and some nets to follow me. But look what you've gotten back in return. That's what he's saying to us. We move on with him. He's going to give back, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It's not about giving a dollar to get back a hundred. That's totally the wrong attitude. It's giving, recognizing that whatever I'm giving to him, he's more than capable and more than willing to give back to me. Let's pray. So two things. One, what's your plan B? And God, I pray for each of us here that you would just, if we've got one, you'd tell us. What is it? And then what does it mean for you to sell it? And God, I pray you'd tell us that also. What does it look like for us to get rid of this thing that competes with you for our trust? What, is this, what does it look like for us to get rid of this thing that competes with you as a source of dependency for us. We want to put all of our weight on you and on your grace. And we don't want to put any on anything else. We can't mix those two things together. We want to be, we don't know how, to become like little children. We're raised to become independent, self-sufficient adults and to think somehow of taking on the posture of a two-year-old. That doesn't compute. We identify with the rich young ruler because he's made, he's, isn't that what you want for each of us? And yet somehow he missed it, and we don't want that to be us. So, Lord, speak to us now in these three or four or five minutes. Give us courage to respond to what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is what we're going to do. Y'all can stand up. And uh, there's two different kind of invitations we're going to have, Aelia, will you and Lillian come forward? Peter, will you and Veronica come up here? Um, we'll start with that. We're gonna, I want you to do this. If you work-wise, if you're unemployed, underemployed, or miserably employed, I want you to come forward for prayer. Don't deal with it on your own. Please let us, please let us pray with you about that. And then the second set is this whole plan B thing. And that's something that if you want, you can come and you can kneel here. And we'll leave you alone. We'd be more than happy to pray with you about that as well. You can take care of that in your seat. But the employment thing, I really want you to come forward and let us intercede with you about that situation. So uh, Bo's going to sing, and then he'll cut us loose when we're done. I want you guys to come forward as you will.